Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I'm kicking off with some news from our friends in the Netherlands, where single men and women are being advised to organise a sex buddy. Official guidance from the Dutch National Institute for Public Health and the Environment, their version of Public Health England, has been amended to suggest that those without a permanent sexual partner come to mutually satisfactory agreements with like-minded individuals. There is also advice for those in a relationship with someone infected by coronavirus or in quarantine with suspected symptoms of the disease. Don't have sex with your partner if they have been isolated because of suspected coronavirus infection, the RIVM says. Sex with yourself or with others at a distance is possible. Think of telling erotic stories or masturbating together. Thank you very much, the Netherlands. A bit of bloody specificity, finally. Fuck, stay alert. Tell each other erotic stories. Finally, this is what we needed. I like that you managed to get uh, mutual masturbation into the first two minutes of this podcast. I also <laughs> like that sex buddy is spelt S-E-K-S buddy. And it's very oh, tempting for attempt to say this in a Dutch accent. I love the Dutch accent. Do you know what I also love? Tell me. That when we logged into House Party, which is one of three streams of technology that we use to produce this hard-hitting news podcast, House Party gave me a little fact when you log in. A flower worn over the left ear in Hawaii signifies that a woman is no longer single. Why is House Party giving you these facts? I know why. It's because everyone's run out of fucking conversation. (laughs) So they're trading in facts. Exactly. They're gearing you up. They're like, right, you have to have a conversation with someone. Here you go. Talk about these women in Hawaii. Maybe if I save a fact every day from House Party, it can write the podcast for us. Yeah, good idea. And <laughs> we basically won't even need by House Party. It will, it will get to a point where you and I just don't even need to be here, I think, and the high-low will make itself. My plea for lockdown love stories weren't quite in line with the new Dutch way of doing things, but we did get some brilliant tales sent to us that I enjoyed. One girl wrote in to say that a friend of hers was online dating a boy who she met during a house party on house party when they left the door unlocked. Oh, bold move, the old door unlocked, isn't it? I have to say, this happened to my friend as well. So basically, this person was let into the house party, just like someone would come into a room of a normal house party. And then that guy, who was a friend of her friend, started messaging her privately. And uh, now they're online dating. So you can still meet boys at house parties. This one is my favourite. I matched with a guy on Hinge right at the beginning of lockdown. We texted for a bit and it was clear there was a connection there. So we decided to have a FaceTime call. Since then, we've had tons of them, the longest being seven hours and have even had a virtual double date where both of us brought along a single friend. One Saturday night, we got drunk together over FaceTime and I flashed him my boobs. (laughs) He's planning on meeting me. (laughs) He's planning on meeting me at the station when I finally get the train back to London very brief encounter and we also have a shared google doc of all the things we want to do together post lockdown that's not a shared google doc that's a snoogle doc 
I don't think I get that. It's like a snuggly snog of the Google Doc. <laughs> Got it. Might might have just made it up on the spot. Mixed responses to my budget hot tub tip um, about how you can just turn a paddling pool into one with some hot water and some bubble bath. I did, however, love the woman that wrote in to tell us that her husband bought one and was the only one that would go in it. And their friends called it his middle class sex pond. Oh, lovely. I've got an uplifting story for you, Panda. A father of a college graduate set up a graduation ceremony. And I mean, he he set it up with everything, every prop, every piece of music, regalia. He rented a podium. He hung a flag and he did it in their driveway so the family could properly mark the occasion. 23-year-old Gabrielle Pierce was meant to graduate from Xavier University of Louisiana on May the 9th. And after it was cancelled, her father, Torrance Burson, took matters into his own hands and set up this graduation ceremony. All the neighbours came out of their homes and watched Gabrielle walk the stage. They had a family member give a speech. It's so magical. You can watch it online. And I think it's such a lovely example of people using their creativity and kindness to try and find a semblance of normality in this kind of abnormal time what a wonderfully devoted father graduation's a big deal in the u.s isn't it yeah i think it's i think it's a huge huge event in a young person's life in america yeah yeah in, in a way that it's not so much in the uk so i think that's so lovely that she'll have those memories a restaurant in Bangkok is providing stuffed pandas to sit with you so you don't get lonely while complying with social distancing guidelines. <laughs> I have... <laughs> I've sent you a little picture, Dolly. I like that the pandas get red chairs whilst the humans get black ones. <laughs> Here's another one for you. Bandit, the pet ferret, has bought 12,000 books for low-income homes by doing a marathon. Sent you a little picky of Bandit. Oh, look at him. Look at that little face on the finish line. Over two and a half weeks, the eight-month-old ferret has been going on mile-long walks with his owners, Jim and Arabella Wood, and their children to raise money for the London Children's Book Project and the At The Bus Art Charity, which put together book bundles for young people in the Oxfordshire area. They started with Bandit on the day that should have been the London Marathon. And having done a mile a day, he's now done a marathon. What a philanthropic ferret. <laughs> I tell you what I also really like. Have you seen the priest in Michigan with a water pistol? I think this might be my favourite. So I'm looking at him now. What's what's he doing with that water pistol? So I had thought, so basically there's a priest wearing a mask with a water pistol and he's shooting holy water. I had thought that people <laughs> were driving by and having like a quite vicious sort of blessing. You yes. know, like getting a hit between of the eye. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> getting a hit of holy water. <laughs> On, on further inspection, he's actually um, watering the uh, flowers outside the church, I think. It's still one hell of an image. Why um, is he using that tiny plastic gun to water the flowers? Everyone's just fucking lost it now, haven't they? Uh, rather than a watering can, you say? Um, yeah, because why? That wouldn't be breaking lockdown law to use a watering can. I think everyone's just losing their minds that? now. Do you do you know? Do you know what the rules are in Michigan? Have you looked no, into that's what watering true. cans? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe they're socially um, distancing from watering cans. 
<laughs> I, I'm permanently socially distanced from watering can. No green fingers here. And another really brilliant one that provides instant cheer is the German cafe where people are wearing swimming noodle hats. Sent you a little picky. Yeah, very pleasing. Very pleasing image. Again, there is a story behind this meme. They haven't been forced to wear these. Like, I think people quite liked the idea that they were sat down at this cafe and then one of these enormous sort of helicopter swimming noodle hats was put on them. Actually, the cafe owner said, to celebrate our cafe opening again, someone's coming to take pictures of the square. Do you fancy wearing these hats? And everyone, funnily enough, fancied it. I also have one last thing that may interest or cheer you, which is absolutely related to nothing. It's just something I read in a book this week and cannot believe we are 60% genetically identical to a banana. Really? I love those facts. I remember reading once that, this is, I mean, this is probably fake news. In the world of misinformation, this fact will go down (laughs) brilliantly. I read once that our bones are... Nearly, nearly. I mean, even I don't believe it as I'm saying it. Nearly identical to the like atomic structure of a of a crunchy bar. Oh, I can understand that. It's not saying we have the same genes, right? Just like the the bones are porous, or something like a crunchy bar, or something. Well, I don't think a crunchy bar carries genetic value. Um. I love that I'm saying that sort of withering put down like I have any sort of scientific knowledge. <laughs> you could just Google it. That's how you'll find okay, out. Okay, let's see. Crunchy bar. I did actually Google the banana to check. And actually, it does make well, sense. We, we share many of the housekeeping genes that are necessary for basic cellular function, such as for replicating DNA, controlling the cell cycle and helping cells divide. So that means the amount, what makes us human is actually quite a small amount of our genes. So that sounds, well, that sounds actually real. I'm in a forum now. This is in the British Medical Journal 2007. But look, I mean, I'm looking at that logo. That could have just been a copy and paste Photoshop job, couldn't it? Accuracy of comparing bone quality to chocolate bars for patient information purposes only. Why would a patient need to know that? Right now, does this mean that if you needed to have your bones replaced, you could just use crunchy bars? Well, it says here, you're right. Um, A healthy bone should look like the finely honeycombed structure of a crunchy. And um, I think perhaps not... And an arrow, arrow, they're saying. And an arrow. But does this look like an... We're on the same page, aren't we? Does this look like an actual medical study? I think it's who just knows? helping regular peeps like me and you who don't know what's in our body or what anything looks like or really yeah, anything, so true. <laughs> anything <laughs> biological at all. I think it's helping us. Um, but it's been repeated across enough sciencey looking websites for it to be legit. As for replacing your bones with crunchies, I think if you have a little think about it, the answer might become clear with that one. If not, don't ring 111 to find out. (laughs) Good use of their time at the moment. I've been sent two absolute treasures from Twitter this week, Pandora, that I've been itching to share with you. The first is a clip of a very sore loser 
on the weakest link 21 years ago after she got knocked out of the game by being voted the weakest link. I am absolutely gutted. I got three questions incorrect in the entire game. As answered, I was the strongest player in the entire game, the strongest link in that round. I asked um, Sue earlier what she wanted to spend the prize money on. She's going to spend it on a holiday. Such frippery is outrageous. I was going to spend my winnings, if I won, on funding my education, on all the debts of being a student, and I think it's very sad, very shallow, and rather evil of the other two to victimise me. I was robbed, what can I say? I mean, I think Sue's going to win at the end of the day, but after all, it's tainted money. And while I was watching this, I did think this is the origin story of Yuan Jane. It feels like it's tainted money walked so Yuan Jane could run. <laughs> and for everyone who might not know, Yuan Jane is your favourite sore loser from Come Dine With Me. Yuan Jane. Oh, my God. Enjoy the money. I hope it makes oh you very God. happy. Dear Lord, what a sad little life, Jane. You ruined my night completely so you could have the money, but I hope now you spend it on getting some lessons in grace and decorum because you have all the grace of a reversing dump truck without any tyres on. <laughs> oh, I don't get it. Well, you wouldn't, let's be honest. There's nobody in there, love. <laughs> So, Jane, take your money and get off my property. The added layer of deliciousness to this Weakest Link clip is that the contestant came clean on Twitter. Dr Katie Bramall-Stainer tweeted, Shitting Christ, this has tragically found the light of day on Twitter, so I'm just going to own up. Yes, this is me 21 years ago, and I blatantly come across as a complete fucking dick. So let's move on and let us never speak of it again. Jesus. That's such a good mayor culpa. I know, what a classy dame, I think, as well, for just coming clean. i just done some digging while you were playing that clip, and she's married to a chief quizzer. They met on University Challenge. Really? So quizzing did not leave her blood, even if um, her fury did. Listen, clever people who work at TV production companies, I think, buy the rights. We should see it on ITV, starring... Michael Sheen in approximately two years. <laughs> My other great Twitter treat for you this week, Panda, is a video clip from Craig Manson, which is a stunningly accurate impression of a performer asking a question at a post-show Q&A, which might sound sort of rarefied and esoteric, but trust me, you know who this man is. From the minute you hear the first four words, you know that you've met this man before. Um, hi, not so much a question as more of just an observation, but what your performance meant kind of on the most transparent level, I'm just going to say back to you and just ask if you had like thought about that and um, kind of a, asking now a controversial question um, to really ask if you had considered that when deciding to present what you just did and um, kind of not really getting to the point, going somewhere else. And and also like a question that doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about now and is more just kind of to do with me because cause referencing my own, my own work now, um, kind of losing my thread a little bit, taking up time and... Uh, I, I, I don't know. Do, do, you, do you know what I mean? Does, does, that, does that make sense? 
I think I could hear him say the words, <laughs> losing my thread a bit, taking up time. I think I could just hear that on repeat for the rest of my life and be very happy. The worst question that I've ever got asked at an event, which people still message me about, was one of my first events that I did for Everything I Know About Love at a bookshop. And there was, it was all women in the audience, obviously, and then one man, and he just, his hand shot up when the Q&A portion began. And he basically said, why do no women fancy me? (laughs) In quite an angry way. And I was like, I don't think you really understand what my book's about because I just don't really think I'm any sort of authority <laughs> to give you an answer to that. <laughs> Did part of you want to tell him you fancied him just to like smooth the waters? Well, part of me wanted to be like, well, if you're as belligerent on a date <laughs> as you are in this q and I think I have the answer for you, mate. <laughs> Dolly, as a foodie, or rather as a pasty, Mm. That's meant to be the past, yeah, meant to be the pasta version of someone that loves food, rather than oh, I like that. You to... I didn't know if it worked there. I'm not sure it does, but we'll press on. What did you make of Robert Pattinson's truly revolting sounding pasta dish he shared with GQ? Do you know? I don't know how I've managed to miss all of this. The only thing I've seen from that interview are the quite flummoxing photos that go alongside it. <laughs> This is so good. I've sent you one of my favourite ones where he looks like a sort of broken China doll, just surrounded by HP sauce, cornflakes and Heinz baked beans. My favourite type of fashion shoot is when someone is wearing, yeah, like he is in this picture, a pair of Dior Timberland boots and he's lying back against silken curtains while surrounded by basic foodstuffs. That's a real theme, you know, like woman in yeah. taffeta dress eats like a piece of probably not bovril toast. That's, that's Yeah, no, no, I know exactly what look you're referring to. The reason why I was interested in these pictures is that he had to take them himself. So I'm really interested at the moment in how magazines are managing like photographic editorial because it's such new territory. But the thing that I find so weird about these pictures the way I described it to a friend is it's almost like he's trolling himself do you know what I mean like he couldn't he couldn't be prettier God has bestowed him everything he needs to take the perfect picture and it's almost like he's going out of his way to look as mad as possible I think they feel quite religious what with that old special K right there next to his Timberland boot why do you think they're religious I think he's doing I think he looks like he's found the light in that picture Anyway, fun as it is to uh, listen to people dissecting images that you can't see, the bit that seems to have attracted the most attention, partly because it took up one third of the word count, is where he talks about his favourite pasta, which he acknowledges is not the pasta he wants to be making and is sort of revolting, but which he makes nonetheless. And it's basically penne pasta covered in tomato sauce, put in the microwave, which breaks during the interview, it blows up. And then you cover it in a sugar and sliced cheese crust and put cornflakes on top. It should be breadcrumbs, but he didn't have any, so he put on cornflakes. I think that sounds... I think the sugary crust? The sugary crust I'm finding difficult. But quite a few journalists... It is a slow time, what can we say? Quite a few journalists have since experimented and written articles about how it actually tastes okay. I saw Liv Potts tried this. So is the take home that actually it's sort of nice? 
was a piece on man repeller that said it was all right. I just, I have pretty lowbrow eating habits, but even I can't bring myself to, to make that. I mean, maybe we should all, maybe we should all give it a go. Why is he doing it in the microwave? Does he not have a hob? If you read the whole interview, he's quite baffled by, I'd say, almost everything. Um, he says, and I think this is quite interesting. He sounds like a very curious character. This is quite interesting. He says he's got absolutely no concept of time. Now, you hear people say that quite a lot, like, oh, sorry, I didn't reply to your text. But he's, he mm. literally says he doesn't know if something happened two years ago or a week ago. Which That's is a challenge. That's an insane thing to say. Well, does he mean in reference to <laughs> lockdown or just generally in life? I think just life. Just that's the way he moves through the world. Panda, that makes no sense. <laughs> you have to, time. We have to acknowledge that that doesn't make any sort of sense at all. He's a time lord, Dolly. Oh he doesn't call himself a time lord, don't worry. Speaking of food, I booked my first ever cookery class for next week. Did you? I did. And I wanted to mention it here, not for the memorability of it being my first ever cookery class, both online or offline, but because I booked it through a really wonderful enterprise called My Grateful, which runs cookery classes led by refugees, asylum seekers and migrants struggling to integrate and access employment. And My Grateful are running the classes via Zoom during lockdown. So I just thought it sounded like a really brilliant idea. The recommended um, price of the cookery lesson is £20, but you pay what you can afford. And next Monday, I will be learning how to cook a Trinidadian meal via Zoom. Nice. What are you going to cook? We are cooking. I have to go buy my ingredients, actually. We are cooking brown stew chicken and cornmeal cuckoo. Cuckoo is a Caribbean-style polenta. It looks absolutely delicious. Send me a picture after you've made it. That sounds lovely. Yeah, what I'll probably do is send you a picture of some chicken and cornmeal cuckoo that I have found on Google Images, and I'll just (laughs) crop it out. (laughs) Hopefully you won't recognise my hob. Are you doing any more of those sort of zoom activities or is that a one-off I did another one last week because I realized that whilst I'm not possibly embracing tech in some way some people are in lockdown I didn't want all the opportunities to pass me by to try out some of the really awesome stuff that people are putting on so I'd heard of the how to academy who do talks uh, and during the pandemic those talks are done via zoom And I actually bought a ticket because I was kind of curious about how they worked. And it ended up being the most fascinating event. The one I watched, it was between this lawyer and legal scholar called Cass Seustein, who is famous for his book, Nudge. And he's now got a new one out called Too Much Information, which I think is really interesting right now, as all we have at the moment is information We don't have experiences. We've just got information. And I think people feel a bit like they're drowning in it. Yes, I think that's very true. He was interviewed by the presenter, Matthew Stadlin, and it was such a charming interview. It had such a good vibe and it was really thoughtful. I loved sitting down and watching with a glass of wine and it gave a lot of pause for thought. And I wanted to share some of the things he said here because I thought he made some really insightful, relevant points that might help some other people too. So he says we prioritise the wrong information. And by that he means 
we prioritise things that loom in the immediate. We give them more importance rather than the greater long-term goal. And he also drew a difference between an emotional and an intellectual understanding, which is a really interesting way to look at the pandemic. It's much easier to understand what's been going on intellectually, you know, the cold hard facts of it, the science, than emotionally. Yeah, but because also something happening on an intellectual level is something that can be more universally agreed, but something happening something being processed on an emotional level is so different for every person and their life and their background and the way that, you know, their mental state and the way they're dealing with things. And that that's what becomes difficult because all those various emotional reactions are all correct and none of them are the same. Yeah, that's such a good point. They're all valid, but that is why things have become more tribal because there isn't any emotional consensus. And, and, how, um, and how, can, how can there be? Yeah, which is something he said actually about common sense, which again, I think was just so interesting. So we keep being told to apply common sense in scenarios. And that's where people are getting so muddled, because in order for common sense to work, it has to be exactly that has to be common, has to be something that's happened before, it has to be an accepted knowledge, or a way of doing things. And none of this is an accepted knowledge. None of it's stuff we've done before. And as Cass says, wearing a mask is not common sense. It's a behaviour change. We've never had to wear a mask before. That's never, we've never been told that's common sense. And he said behaviour changes need clarity and simplicity and they need to be clearly actionable. So telling someone to stay two metres apart, that's clearly actionable. Stay alert, for example, is not clearly actionable. You don't know what action to take when somebody says that. You don't know mm. what common sense to apply. And I think that's mm. what's getting a lot of people in a tizzy. Yeah. Well, I feel totally muddled by that. Yeah, I think everyone does. I think anyone that uses social media falls into perhaps a trap at times, some more than others, I'm sure, some more often than others, of feeling like you couldn't get that information elsewhere. And I definitely realised when I stopped regularly using Instagram about a year ago that um, people will just send you stuff if they know that you're... If they know that, you know... and, And I do that now. To my friends that aren't on social media, you know, I constantly send them stuff that I find funny on Instagram or Twitter that I know that they wouldn't have otherwise seen. So I think the beauty of now is there are a lot of places you can get your information. But of course, that comes with the downside, which is there are so many places, too many places. So tell me some more stuff that you learned this week. I've got a very funny and brilliant piece called Here's How Time Works Now by Ellie Grober, which is a sort of meditation on the concept of time during lockdown. Bet Robert Pattinson would like it. And I'd like to read it in full because I think it's really funny and I think it makes some really astute observations. And I think time has become such an important part of our lives now in a way that I can't recall it feeling like it's so at the forefront of my mind. Is it passing too slowly? Is it passing too quickly? How do I fill it? How do I slow it down? How do I speed it up? How long is this going to last? It feels like time is really the big kind of unsolvable riddle at the moment for all of us. Here at Time, we've made a few changes you may already be experiencing that we think you should know about. Please see below. 
A minute. A minute used to be 60 seconds long. We thought this could be spiced up. A minute can now either be one hour or it can take 3.5 seconds. We hope you enjoy this new feature. A day. (laughs) You may remember that a day used to take place over the course of 24 hours. We felt this was too much. A day is now over the moment you first ask yourself, what time is it? It does not matter what time it actually is when you do this. As soon as you ask or think, what time is it for the first time that day, even if it is still 10 in the morning, it will suddenly be 8 at night. Does that make sense? A week. A week was once measured over the course of seven days. Our testing showed that this has been way too short for way too long. So we made a big adjustment. A work week now takes an entire year. From Monday to Friday, you will feel like it's been and you will actually age an entire year. This is non-negotiable. That brings us to a weekend. A weekend doesn't exist anymore. You'll go to sleep on Friday and you'll wake up on Monday with a vague memory that you may have watched an entire TV show, every episode, every season, sometime in the last 48 hours. A month. Let's talk about months. Months used to be pretty inconsistent. Some months were 30 days, some were 31, and one was 28 or 29. This seemed too confusing, so now they are all four days long. That's right, every month takes four days. You'll get to the end of a month and think, wow, that felt like it was only four days, which used to be one day shy of a week, but now it's just one ninetieth of a week because a week is a year and a month is four days, and you'll be right. A year. Now, I bet you're wondering what a year is. Well, I hate to say it, but we're all wondering what a year is. The guy who was in charge of readjusting a year just quit, and he won't talk to any of us, so your guess is as good as mine. But I think it's going to be a pretty long time. (laughs) That's such a good musing on, like, the elasticity of time right now. Totally, totally. I loved it. I loved cooking through quarantine with Stanley Tucci for The Atlantic. Me too. Someone said that Stanley Tucci is one of the only people who can't put a foot wrong during this pandemic. And I wonder if that's true of life too. He's like Jeff Goldblum, an absolute amalgamation of debonair and self-deprecating. Yeah, he's my homeboy. You interviewed him for Love Stories, which is, I think, my favourite episode you did of that podcast. Is he as debonair and self-deprecating in flesh? Yeah, he's devastating. Charming, warm, really quick. <laughs> Love that. He's devastating. He is. He's an absolute showstopper. I've never met a man like him before. Just generous, socially generous, great raconteur. I love him. He's great. He's like even more brilliant in the flesh than he is on the screen, I think. Anyway, this piece is wonderful in which he talks through a day in lockdown in a busy family home, which is made up of little children, grown-up children, and he and his wife, Felicity. It's a really funny, charming account of what this chaos can look and feel like and includes beautiful recipes for both meals and cocktails so you can cook along with him. And I think from what it says at the bottom of this piece of The Atlantic, I think this is a serialised feature, so I think hopefully we'll be hearing more from him with these diaries. He begins... At first, I had grand plans for how we might pass the time in convivial and entertaining ways. I thought perhaps a rotating schedule of cooks for the nightly meal, followed by movies, games or Bordeaux-fuelled charades by the fire. Things didn't quite work out that way. Instead, here's what our typical day looks like. 7am. Within moments of Felicity and I awakening, our five-year-old is in our room. It's not clear how he knows we're awake. 
For all we know, he has a monitor, like the one we used to listen to his two-year-old sister. He walks us over to my wife's side of the bed, completely ignoring me as usual, and begins to chat with her about nothing and everything. His usual topics is dragons, as he is obsessed with the book series How to Train Your Dragon and its various cinematic spin-offs. Felicity and I head to the bathroom and he follows and perches himself on the B-Day to regale us with plot points from the novels and observations about the seemingly endless variety of dragons and their specific attributes. He will carry on this way more or less until sunset. <laughs> and then it goes through the day and another highlight of the diary is at five o'clock. The older children have now come downstairs to eat an entire fucking meal before dinner. Thankfully, as penance, two of them take the little ones up for their bath. Felicity enters the kitchen and begs for a Negroni. I gladly make her one as I hate to drink alone, although I've been known to make near daily exceptions. <laughs> and anyway, one is never really drinking alone. Someone else is drinking somewhere. We prepare the children's dinner, lamb chops, rice and string beans. I switch to white wine and thank Christ it is evening. He makes a strong case for having older children so that they can bathe the younger children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think there are a lot of families that um, would quite like to fly in some uh, older children to corral the younger children. Um, I love that. That's really funny. And I especially love and identify with the um, endless analysis of books that children can give. <laughs> Yeah, there's sort of all day purposeful wittering. There's a there's a portion of it that I loved as well, where he sort of doffs his cap to the creators of Peppa Pig. <laughs> I mean, Peppa Pig is also a near daily, to use his phrase, friend of mine, along with Dougie and newly Baby Shark. My daughter's slightly like you, Dolly. She likes something about a year or two after everyone else has raved about it. Can't stand it during the hype. <laughs> thinks it's really passe to like something at the time it's actually happening and then adopts it when it's gone a little bit quieter. Yeah, on that note, I've really started getting into an artist called Billie Eilish. Anyway, <laughs> I'd also like to recommend Sinead Burke on Desert Island Discs. I was blown away by her episode. Sinead is a disability rights activist, a writer and a teacher. It's such a fascinating and inspiring interview and a really full portrait of someone who is so determined and proactive in making a really impactful, positive change in the world. She talks about how she made the term little person be translated into the Irish language as before it didn't exist. What, what The only word that existed was dwarf, which isn't a word she uses to describe her disability. She tells a horrible and ultimately incredible story about how she experienced a particular incident of humiliation in recent years on a Dublin street when two teenage boys, one of them leapfrogged over her and the other one took a video and she was understandably left mortified and devastated and humiliated by the incident. But instead of looking to reprimand and punish those two boys, she decided to go into every primary and secondary school in the local area to educate children on her story and her disability. So there is no way that those two boys didn't hear her story. And she herself has been a teacher and her insights into how to communicate with children and how to respect them rather than control them and how to offer up an open space in a classroom where disability can be talked about. These insights are just so intelligent she also speaks about the fashion industry and about how visibility isn't enough 
of a change in the fashion industry and that change needs to happen at such a deeper level. For example, crucially, design has to change. And it's just full of wisdom and thoughtfulness. And it's a really, really powerful listen. And I can guarantee that you'll come away from it so inspired and just wanting to do better and be better. I love music and I love to dance, but that wasn't always possible. And I had experiences in my late teens, early 20s, where people would, with a few drinks in them, come over. They would pick me up, they would throw me in the air, and they thought it was funny, and it made me feel so unsafe. But I found a safe space. Where was it? And that was the gay and the queer communities in Dublin. I went to the George, which is this amazing, legendary club in Dublin, and I remember being really nervous getting up to dance for the first time because I knew... I was going to be looked at and I just would be so conscious of being observed. And it was amazing because nobody cared (laughs) because everybody was different. And it was just so freeing. And I remember turning to my friends at the end of the night and going, is this how you feel every night out clubbing? Because like, I get it. Like, I finally get it. I'm in. Like, count me in. Every Saturday, I'm here. It was really powerful. She's an incredible force for change, Sinead. And she's an amazing person to be working within the realm of fashion because, you know, she is now sitting front row at fashion shows and she's having clothes made for her by all of the top, 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 top designers. And she has said, you know, that's great and that's fun, but that's not benefiting other people other than... Mm her what Mm. the kind of the the issues that really need to be changed are stuff like when shops say oh well we can't design clothes for little people because um well we don't have mannequins and so she went and got a cast made of her body and then she was like here's your mannequin so she's she's a real pragmatist she's coming up with solutions to problems that a whole industry was leaning on And she makes them seem so simple and she does it with such charm, but they're not simple and they're not always easy. And I'm a huge fan and I love that Desert Island Discs interview. Mm. Thank you for flagging that. I adored a piece by Satnam Sangira on isolating with his two nieces, who are sisters aged 21 and 23. He invited them to come and stay in his flat with him during lockdown as they all live in London. And they're a close extended family and he thought it would be nicer to be together during it. Satnam writes a lot about his family in a way that's both dry and funny. He's Never sentimental, but he's also never cruel. And I think this piece is my favourite piece he's ever written because it starts off very drolly about how he has to get how he has to get them to hide all of their biscuits because otherwise his sugar intake gets out of control. And then it becomes very moving and lovely with a depth that kind of takes you by surprise and it takes it beyond the usual lockdown feuds about washing up and biscuit crumbs and and someone else's annoying phone calls that you have to listen to. Here's Satnam reading an extract of his piece for the Hilo. In a spirit of fairness, I asked them to list what they have found annoying about me during lockdown, and the list is predictably long. It includes blaming us whenever the plumbing goes wrong, having to hide snacks, judgment for waking up late, judgment for not leaving the house, not being allowed to talk about dinner until 12pm, you're mumbling, incessant complaining about snacks, who has half a biscuit, just eat the damn biscuit, criticising the wearing of slippers in warm sunshine, rushing through board games, putting us in your articles, 
threw away a brownie I was looking forward to to stop yourself eating it, Kit Kat time, asking Jasmine to put me down, The Simpsons isn't that hard to follow, you tried to explain the whole Cold War to me, I just wanted to watch half The Simpsons. The corresponding list of good things for Simran comprises of little more than you don't judge my alcohol intake, you have a lot of cute cats in your neighbourhood, and your espresso machine. Meanwhile, Jasmine states simply and damningly, struggled with this one. I guess, if you don't know us, you might assume we're not fond of each other. But actually, and as mortifying it is to admit in an article, I have to make them read for reasons of potential libel, I suspect we have the opposite problem. That if we started to get into what we mean to each other, it might be overwhelming. You see, Jasmine and Simon are my eldest sister's daughters. My sister has schizophrenia, a debilitating mental illness that gets even worse with stress, and which resulted in her extended hospitalisation when her husband and their father died suddenly from alcoholism more than a decade ago. In the mayhem and the heartbreak that followed, the girls spent some time in the care system before we, as a family, adopted them. If there's one person responsible for their success, it is, of course, my mother. Lots of people are aware from reading and watching The Boy with the Top Knot that she endured unimaginable pressures in her early adulthood. Married off to a young man, experiencing the violent symptoms of schizophrenia, she not only saved him, but then saved us, her four children. But what people don't know is that when she should have been finally enjoying retirement, she raised two grandchildren. Though the rest of the family, including my since-recovered sister, have played a part, and I have been among them, I'm not quite sure of the exact role I play in their life. An uncle-uncle? A chaotic father figure? Sometimes people mistake me for a much older brother. But one of the hardest things I've ever done is take two children who had just lost their father to see their mother in a locked psychiatric unit on a Christmas Day morning. I remember promising myself at the time that I would do whatever I could to make sure they always felt secure despite the chaos of the situation. It hasn't, in truth, ever felt like a chore. They turned into A-star students, got themselves into the best universities in the land and helped us more than we ever helped them. When my father was hospitalised last year and couldn't even use the toilet, they cleaned up after him. They sit and cheerfully listen to my mother talk for hours at a time. They ring their own mother several times a day between them. And while I'm excited about lockdown ending, going to the toilet with the door open again, not being recommended Disney soundtracks by Spotify, which seems to think I'm a 21-year-old woman, it has served to remind me that they're one of the best things that have ever happened to me. That is such an incredibly moving story. I love how much he comprises in that piece. I just think it's the perfect punch of a piece. It's funny and it's the everyday and it's the minutiae and then it's this sort of moving, expansive family drama of past and present and future and Mm. it's just gorgeous. Gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. I'll link that piece in the show notes. I also loved a piece by the filmmaker Naima Raza about how coronavirus changed dating. Even before this crisis, she writes, modern dating sometimes seemed endless. We live in an era of unlimited swipes, rare gems and punted decisions. Data suggests we're chatting simultaneously with more matches than ever before. Face to face, it would be a recipe for mass contagion. And yet equally, she writes, spending months virtually dating someone through a pandemic only to discover their zero chemistry is my lesser COVID nightmare. Yeah, and I think it's 
without being of the voice of doom, I think it can be a very real threat. You know, virtual intimacy and real life connection are very different things. A lot of single people are wanting intimacy, but it's being refracted through a medium that you're often told not to trust. Um, mm. And she goes on to say the pandemic will inevitably change the way that we, particularly Americans, were much more slick at multiple dating than fumbly old British people date. She writes, there's the question of how and how many we date. In a pre-coronavirus world, it would be an option to keep seeing Saturday's Englishman and Thursday's cinematographer. Soon, I could maybe put on a mask and take a socially distant walk with one and then the other. But at some point, when a mask comes off and the sparks of a first kiss fly, there has to be a choice. No more cognitive overload. Locking lips suddenly means forsaking all others, or at least keeping others six feet away for 14 days. Do you think dating will sort of slow and become more meaningful because of it? I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think this is such an unsatisfying take, but it will be such a different world, the dating landscape. I have no idea how or why and what that will look like. But I just, I think it's going to be like a really strange period of readjustment. There we go. Radical opinion there. <laughs> I loved her ending line as well. Let's be honest, there's something a little thrilling about a first kiss being taboo again. That is yeah. a little thrilling. I will also link that in the show notes. And keep sending us your lockdown love stories, even if we don't read them all out. We are very much enjoying them. Thank you. And speaking of love stories, if you're longing for a hit of romance and love and you don't want to log into Hinge and who could blame you, I would like to point you in the direction of A Love in Verse, which is an online project created by writer Anna Jordan. She has collated the daily poems that her dad wrote to her mum in their 25 years together before her mum died of cancer a few years ago. He wrote a micro poem for her every day and put it under her pillow and you can browse them by decade or from oldest to newest or newest to oldest uh, on this archive and some of them are read aloud by actors. I'd like to read oh. a few of my favourites. I know, Panda. <sighs> read with a box of tissues. Coming Home in the Rain, written in 1983. Coming home in the rain to my home again. My kids, my wife, the heart of my life. New Joys, which he wrote in 2000. If I had time and money, I'd take you on a cruise, but lack of cash ain't funny. I shall not hold you again, she wrote in 2019. In life, I shall not hold you again. I've held the box your ashes are in, but I can't take death on the chin. God, that's so gorgeous. And actually, that really hits me this week because I don't know if you keep your old letters, doll, but I've been going through all my old letters this week and separating them out into different boxes. So uh, oh, the notes idea. that my husband's written for me, mm. I, he, he writes quite a lot of notes, so I've kept them all. And um, I've got a lot of cards from you in there, all the cards my mum and dad has ever sent me, all the birthday cards from my mum's cats, my mum's dogs, <laughs> my mum's pigeon. Um, Your so mum's if, pigeon? No, she hasn't. I was just, I was taking the mickey. <laughs> But if you're someone that holds on to old letters, now is a really nice time to go through them. I found that a really lovely yeah. thing to do. And, oh, that's such a blissful recommendation. Thank you, Dolly. Anything else you've been loving? I am loving Dissect, which is a serialised music podcast. It's 
long form analysis of albums, one album per series. And the, the analysis is split up into forensically detailed half hour episode. So there's a season on Lemonade by Beyonce to Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. There's analysis on albums by Frank Ocean, Kanye and Tyler, the creator. That sounds like it's made for you. I love it so much. It's so geeky and it's like so exhaustive and I haven't listened to anything like it. The season I'm currently listening to is a dissection of The Miseducation of Lauren Hill and each series not only analyzes the album conceptually and as an entire piece of work but each song is a kind of standalone piece. I loved listening to the episode on Doo-Wop, That Thing, which is my favourite track from that record. It's a really, really in-depth unpicking of the music and the messaging and the lyrics and the historical and social context of the time. It's so, so detailed. The narrator, Cole Kutchner, isolates each line of melody, each instrument, and talks through its sound and its historical inspiration. In this song, there's a lot about how influence Lauren Hill was by doo-wop music and the sounds of the late 50s and how she juxtaposed that and integrated it into a 90s hip-hop sound and the lyrical dissection of that song is fascinating as it's Lauren Hill's takedown of hip-hop culture of the time and specifically the messaging that was being sent to both men and women and how she believed that that messaging had led to a breakdown in relationships between men and women. And the dual meanings between the lyrics are so fascinating and so detailed and so sprawling from references to religious texts to references to past musical genres. It really lends itself to a really rigorous analysis. The first half of the song is addressed to women who she believed had been encouraged to give their bodies away too freely to gain the affection of men. And so some guys are only about that thing, that thing meaning sex. And then the second verse directed at men is about how they've been encouraged to become preoccupied with alpha maledom exhibited mainly through wealth and power and how some girls are only after that thing. And in that case, that thing is money. I'm very aware that I'm sounding a bit like Simon Sharma talking about <laughs> music. But it's just so fascinating. And I was always aware that it was a very incisive song about gender. But listening to an almost academic reading of it makes you realise just what a masterpiece it was and what a call to arms it was for both men and women. I loved listening to this archive interview with Lauren Hill, which was featured in the episode. You know, yes, there's a little anger, there's a little resentment because you, you raise a standard, you know, you, you especially when you do it and, and you make some noise. You know, and you do it and, and people actually listen to what you have to say and like your record is bumping on the radio and you're saying something that holds a mirror up to a lot of the negativity and self-indulgent things and messages that a lot of other people, you know, but, but we're all young. I mean, I, I have a hard time being so hard on the music world, especially hip hop, because most of them come out of the hood 17 years old, having no clue or concept having no concept of what life really is. And because hip-hop is so fast and, and what we like changes so quickly, by the time they do get a concept, they're no longer making records. You know, so I was, I've, I've been put in this unique position. I have this very unique responsibility that God has made me aware while I still have the mic. 
I love the double meaning of that. That's so interesting. There's a few podcasts that do that with movies and it's so... If, if you are really into a certain thing, it's so lovely to be able to just hear that expanded backstory about it. Yeah, it? it's my. I think it's my favourite kind of corner of the podcast store. That that nichiness, I think, is just where podcasts thrive. Those conversations. Have you got anything else to recommend us, Panda? A book I'm reading and absolutely loving called "The Vanishing Half" by Britt Bennett. Oh, I've been meaning to read this book. So her first book, The Mothers, came out, I think, a few years ago, and it's absolutely stunning. This one is just as good. It's about a set of twins called Desiree and Stella, who were born into a small rural town in Louisiana in the 1950s, and who both run away from the town and from each other, age 16. Their lives split, and they choose to occupy two different worlds that can never intertwine, one white, one black. And it's a novel about motherhood and race and how you metabolise childhood trauma. And I think it's really interesting on how two people can witness the same atrocity as children and live almost identical lives, you know, have almost identical upbringings. But that doesn't mean that they can't go on to lead very different adult lives and to hold very different fears about the world and themselves and it's an incredibly clever book it interrogates race with such nuance through the characters of Desiree and Stella who are light-skinned and quote-unquote white passing and they use their skin colour to have this quite fluid identity which actually is as confusing to them as it is liberating they separately reject and embrace a black identity it's such an easy read it's it's compulsively readable but it's so clever and energetic and singular and I remember thinking that when I read The Mothers that I'd never read anything like it you know she has such a distinctive voice and also which is something that I think you'll love about her writing she reads like such an old soul and she's not she's a young woman but her her telling or her storytelling and um, her ability to write so kind of, I don't like the word authentic, but I can think of no better word here, to write so authentically about any given decade is just such an incredible talent. And she's been compared to Jacqueline Woodson and also Toni Morrison. It comes out the week after next. So that is a book to look forward to imminently. I, I can't tell you how much I'm loving it next on my pile and on a side note if you like brit's writing or emma klein's emma klein wrote the best-selling book the girls or if you just like reading conversations between authors there's a brilliant dialogue between them on entertainment weekly emma's new book daddy stories is also about to come out and i will link that conversation in the show notes sadly don't have time for Ask the Hilo this week because we've waffled on about lots of recommendations but we will aim to bring it back for you next week you can get in touch with us by emailing show at gmail.com you can tweet us at show. keep your spirits up keep your tits firmly in your bra or on your FaceTime dates and we'll talk to you next week bye bye bye
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 